Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jenna, if we haven't met. Uh, it's really good to be together this morning. I am the executive pastor here at Awaken, and I am leading us in our call to worship this morning. Um, This week is a week in our nation's history where we take a day to honor the life of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I, maybe you too, each year as we return to this day, feel the tension of what it is to honor the life of this person who was one among many giving their life for the pursuit of God's justice. That tension is because of the ways that we sanitize a very radical message. It's because of some of the performative ways that that maybe shows up. It's the tension because this week in particular, news broke about the death of Kenneth Anderson, or sorry, Kenan Anderson. Um, And if I, maybe people like me, are honest, it's also because of the tension that whole bit on the white moderate. The ways that his words confront, uh, maybe invite deeper into what it means to be a person that wants to pursue a life of justice. It's an invitation. And so this morning, uh, I thought it would be fitting to lean on the words of Howard Thurman, activist, theologian, one of King's influences, uh, in a a reading called Give Me the Listening Ear. So as we maybe uh, prepare our hearts for worship this morning and maybe identify paths to action and invitation this week, I thought it would be fitting to start with maybe an impetus for wise action, which is listening. Like, can we hear? Can we see? And so I'd like to invite you, if you are able, to stand and receive these words. Let these words prepare our hearts for worship this morning. Give me the listening ear, the eye that is willing to see. Give me the listening ear. I seek this day the ear that will not shrink from the word that corrects and admonishes, the word that holds up before me the image of myself that causes me to pause and reconsider, the word that challenges me to deeper consecration higher resolve, the word that lays bare needs that make my own days uneasy, that seizes upon every good, decent impulse of my nature, channeling it into paths of healing in the lives of others. Give me the listening ear. I seek this day the disciplined mind, the disciplined heart, the disciplined life that makes my ear the focus of attention through which I may become mindful of expressions of life foreign to my own. I seek the stimulation that lifts me out of old ruts and established habits, which keep me conscious of myself, my needs, my personal interests. 
Give me this day the eye that is willing to see the meaning of the ordinary, the familiar, the commonplace, the eye that is willing to see my own faults for what they are, the eye that is willing to see the likable qualities in those I may not like, the mistake in what I thought was correct, the strength in what I had labeled as weakness. Give me the eye that is willing to see that thou hast not left thyself without a witness in every living thing. Thus, to walk with reverence and sensitiveness through all the days of my life. Give me the listening ear, the eye that is willing to see. Amen. Welcome to you all. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you have your Bibles, you're going to want to find them. Uh, we're in the book of Mark. Um, do you think that the Vikings can beat the Giants? Yeah? We're positive today? We got, we're feeling good about it? I don't know. We'll see. I guess that's, uh, that's an obvious answer. We'll see, right? Um, before we get started this morning, I want to uh, offer a couple of things by way of announcement. First of all, if you're new, welcome. We're really glad that you're with us. A um, couple of announcements, the first of which is the Awaken Grown Up Prom, you guys. It's Grown Up Prom. This is February the 10th. We're having like a good old-fashioned dance party here at the church. It's going to be in the Fellowship Hall. <laughs> That's downstairs in the basement. Uh, there will be lots of things to do. Uh, there will be hopefully a food truck available. We're securing that. Um, if you don't like dancing, there will be some games and some places for you to hang out as well. Um, no date required for this party. It is semi-formal. We're going like we're going all the way. So please join us, um, young and old. It's going to be a lot of fun. That's a, a, a grown-up prom that's happening. Uh, 40 Orchard Study Day is next Saturday night, January 21st. So if you haven't signed up for that, uh, please do. This is 1 to 8. It's kind of like uh, an intentional day of study from 1 to 5, and then we'll have dinner together afterwards at a house up on Capitol Hill. And um, if, you, if you studied last time and you were waiting to sign up um, after tonight, you can go ahead and sign up if there are spots available. And last but not least, uh, this month is a supply drive for Walking with the Purpose. We had a little concert here on Friday night. I don't know, we probably had 60, 70 people. Uh, Billy and uh, Angie sang, and Todd shared. Todd started Walking with the Purpose. It's a ministry to folks who are experiencing homelessness in St. Paul. So if you, um, tarps, mittens, socks, hand warmers, any number of things, uh, if you were living outside and you might need it, you can bring it and you can put it in the back. There's a basket back there. Sound good? Okay, friends. Um, Michael, would you please uh, make your way up to the front? We're going to read from the book of Mark. Uh, if you're able, I would invite you to stand and we will j dive in to our scripture this morning. Two passages from Mark, first in chapter 1. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And then from Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake 
and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Indumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Pray with me. God, this morning as we gather, um, it's my hope and prayer that uh, by your spirit you might speak a word of encouragement, of hope, of healing and invitation to us, uh, those gathered in your name. And um, so we trust that your spirit is present to us and with us and for us, around us. Uh, and it's always my hope and prayer that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray in the strong name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. And the church said together, amen. You may be seated. So last week we kicked off a new series in the season of Epiphany, and we call, we're calling it the Transformation of Jesus. Uh, for those of you that are not aware, in the church calendar, Epiphany is the celebration of the coming of God, the divine light into the world in the person of Jesus. And uh, if you remember, if you know anything about church history, for the first couple of centuries, uh, the church and mothers and fathers were debating, arguing, discussing, trying to make sense of exactly how to understand Jesus. Uh, the Christ, the second person of the divine fellowship we call the Trinity, right? Enfleshed, embodied, made known to us as Jesus, of Nazareth, born to Mary and Joseph, son of a carpenter. So Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity. How do we hold those things together? And so uh, Epiphany is this celebration of beginning at the baptism of Jesus and ending with the transfiguration of Jesus before we make our way into Lent. Of course, Lent is the, the, the journey towards Easter and the cross. And so um, this series, we're looking at uh, like specifically the humanity of Jesus. What does it mean to think about this person? Uh, yes, the divinity of, of, of Jesus, like Jesus as, the, as, as God, important. We're going to hold that. Yep, affirm it. Awesome. Now we're going to spend seven weeks talking about, thinking about Jesus as a human. What was the journey that he took from when we, like what's recorded of him in the beginning of the Gospels, all the way up to the moment when he walks to the cross and is faithful to that call? How does he get there? What are the people that he had contact with? What were the moments? What were the, the situations, the sort of inciting incidents that led him to become the kind of person that he became, right? You as a human, you're growing, you're evolving, you're becoming, you're changing. Jesus was human, so we have to assume he did that. So we're looking at these stories and wondering, like, were there moments along the way where he was challenged or changed or invited to grow and move, right? That's the series. Last week, we started with the baptism of Jesus, we looked at thresholds and uh, consent and design patterns. So uh, Jesus' baptism as a threshold, a moment of before and after, right? These places in our life where we can cross over into a new way of being or relating or uh, a, a new habit, right? Um, and, and thresholds are something that they happen all the time. We're invited to, to think about them, to be intentional about the ways in which we enter them. And that we can be a part of creating them in the world for others, uh, we looked at Jesus' baptism as consent, 
what is Jesus' baptism? You know, we get baptized into Christ, you know, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. But why does Jesus need to be baptized? Is Jesus' baptism not his consent? His baptism into us as humans. Jesus saying, I'm with them. I identify with them. Not because he had to, not because he, because he wanted to, out of love. And then last, this, this pattern in scripture where we see God liberating people through water. And so John invites Jesus out to, and the, and the Israelites, out to the Jordan River, where they stood once before, generations before, asking them to commit their life to a certain pattern, a certain way of being in the world. This week, I want to look at, I want to explore and spend some time thinking about um, something that we see very clearly in Mark's, uh, chapters 1 to 9 in Mark's gospel. If you read it, and I would encourage you to do that, uh, if you're paying attention, it's hard to not notice this thing that Jesus always seems to do. Nine different times in Mark 1 to 9, Jesus moves towards silence and solitude. He seems to back away from the fray, the, the, the public sphere. And nine different times we see Jesus intentionally walk towards, move into, lean into solitary places and silence and solitude. So I want to explore that this morning. If you're looking for a habit or an activity, an action that Jesus does, uh, more than anything else, that it's connected to his transformation, you could argue like there is no more important thing than silence and solitude. I'm curious, like when you think about your own journey, your own experience in spiritual life, like in the church or growing up, you know, what were you told is the most important thing? I don't know, for me, I was thinking about that and I was like, Bible study, like Bible memory and not sinning. Those are like the, that's like the highest, highest priority, you know. Uh, no one told me, like, it's really important to have times of silence and solitude. So, why does Jesus do that? Um, and, and when I say, so we're going to explore this idea of silence and solitude, and, and I want to um, be clear about what I mean. Because maybe, if you're like me at all, and you grew up in the church, you immediately go to the quiet time, Right? You guys remember this? The quiet time? This is like you alone in your bedroom or your prayer closet, even better, you know, uh, with your Bible, you know, talking to God. And uh, for me, the quiet time was driven more by guilt than it was desire. And I want to try to broaden our imagination for what I mean by this practice of silence and solitude. Uh, so here's a working definition I'll offer, and when, I t when, I'm, when I'm using this idea, and I'm encouraging you to move towards it, this is what I mean. Any intentional time you take to remove yourself from the company of other humans, birds and animals, they're fine, but humans, no way, right? Uh, removing yourself from the company of other humans for the expressed intent of being in communion with and in the presence of the divine. So when we talk about silence and solitude, this is what I'm encouraging. This is what I'm inviting us to move towards. Removing ourselves from the presence of other humans for the expressed intent of being in communion and in the presence of the divine. Uh, it could be as simple as a walk, right? It could be, you know, go to your favorite lake or river or somewhere nearby where you're in, away from others for the expressed intent of being in communion in the presence of the divine. could be, a, if you like drives, go for a drive by yourself. Right? It could be as simple as a few moments of stillness or quiet before a day begins. 
could be as big as a, a retreat, uh, you know, a weekend or a sabbatical. Right? All of these things, they count. They're in the mix. So let's, let's have an imagination for it. But the important parts are stillness of mind and spirit. Settling, quieting, slowing, still. Stillness, solitude of personhood, away from others. And finally, intention, being in the presence of God. So those three things, I would say, are the most important when we're talking about this. Uh, when we started Awaken f 13 years ago, I went on a four-day retreat uh, away from anybody. I was by myself. I sat under a tree that looked a lot like that one over there for four days for the expressed intent to be in the presence of God and to hear God's voice. Uh, we as a staff, we've built it into our rhythm every year. Uh, during Lent, right before Lent, uh, in fact, I think next February 6th, 7th, and 8th, we're going away as a staff to a place called Pachaman Terrace. It's a little Catholic hermitage uh, retreat center that they run where everybody gets their own little spot. And we're doing that because we want to be intentional about getting away, being in the presence of God so we can hear and listen. Um, on Sunday mornings, if you come early, there's a good chance you'll find me in the last parking spot in the back parking lot over there, um, looked, looking like I've fallen asleep. I haven't. Most Sundays, 10 minutes, I just sit out in my car, I preach to nobody, the squirrels usually at the playground, and I practice, and then I just take 10 minutes of silence before I come and I'm with you all so that I can remember who I am. And remember what my job is and what my job isn't so that I can give out of a place of being full. So those are just a few examples, okay? Um, I mentioned John uh, or Mark, nine times Jesus moves towards silence and solitude. And I want to look at this morning and the time we have remaining, what are the moments right before Jesus moves towards this practice? So what are like the precipitating moments? What are the inciting incidents that moves Jesus, the human, to get away? And I'll just offer a couple of them. There, we could do more, but I picked three that I think are appropriate, like applicable to us, in hopes that we can gain a little bit of wisdom about, uh, from Jesus about mastering the art of living. I want you to think about Jesus as someone who's mastered the art of being human. He gives you and I an example of how to be human. He does a lot more, for sure. He dies on the cross, and there's atonement, and there's all that kind of stuff happening. Yes, but he gives you and me an example, a picture of, like, the best human life. So, what are the moments before he moves towards silence? All right, that's where we're going to go. Number one, um, before something significant begins. If you pick up in Mark's gospel, in verse 12, it says, At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted. He was with the animals, and the angels attended to him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The moment before Jesus begins what we would call his public ministry, right? Before this moment, nothing is recorded of his life. We don't know what he said. We don't know what he's done. We don't know who he's hung out with. We know nothing until Mark and John and Matthew and Luke write things down. And the moment before his like, uh, work begins, he's in the desert. He's led by the Spirit for 40 days to be still, to be quiet, to be near in the presence of God. Um, he's praying, he's fasting, he's being tested, but it, prior to this moment, he hasn't done anything. 
um, how often do we, before a significant event, move towards silence or solitude? Henry Nouwen talks about this. Um, he talks about this sort of progression that I found myself in often. I'm guessing you may be able to relate to this, but it goes something like this. You want to put that next slide up there. Uh, we get an idea. He calls it ministry. Like We get a spark, an idea, and we just crack on, right? We go for it. We, we, be, we begin. We try. We start the thing because we got an idea. And then we get into the idea, we get into the work, and we realize, man, this is like heavy lifting. And so phone a friend, Regis Philbin. We call some of our friends. We call the community in. We're like, let's do this together. Let's push this thing up the hill. And then when all else fails, and we're like, we cannot make this thing go, somebody goes away, and somebody like goes and prays and asks God to help, right? Anybody ever been there before, right? Now one's like, flip it over. We see Jesus, the example that he gives, it's the opposite of what we often do. It's upside down, it's backwards, where Jesus spends the first move is solitude, in silence. He goes away before the significant thing happens, before the idea is hatched, before it's birthed. Why? To be reminded of who he is, to be reminded that he's beloved, to be reminded that before he does anything, before he produces anything, before he makes anything, his, his identity as the beloved child of God is secure. And then from that place, listens and is invited to do. And then what does he do when he gets out of the desert? He goes and he calls the 12 disciples, right? He calls in community and says, hey, let's do this thing together. And then the work of the gospel goes out into the world. So this may seem very uh, like a simple idea, but I don't know, as I was thinking about this and how often I do the first one instead of the second one, if I'm being totally honest, it's a lot of the time. Um, Jenna and I are a part of this uh, cohort that we're, we're doing uh, about like embodied anti-racism practices. And we were just there this last week and I was talking with this guy named Mark. He's a pastor and he said, you know, I don't tell people this because I don't know what effect it would have, but like 90% of the sermons that I preach are really for myself as a pastor. <laughs> and I think he's right. Uh, oftentimes they say, if you want to learn something, teach it. Uh, and this sermon, this, this teaching is as much for me today as it is for you. Um, we see Jesus responding to the invitation of silence and solitude prior to, before a significant thing in his life happens. An invitation to, um, to file that one away. This is a better way to live. This is a better way to be human. Second, we see Jesus um, moving towards silence and solitude when something goes well. When he succeeds, uh, this is one of the most bizarre and vexing and counterintuitive moves Jesus makes. Uh, it goes against every bone in the body of American Western capitalism, right? Uh, this is verse 29 of chapter 1. It says, as soon as they left the synagogue, Jesus is at the church. He's doing business. Things are there. It's happening, right? As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed. She's sick. She's got a fever. They immediately tell Jesus about her, so he goes to her, takes her hand, and helps her up. The fever left her, and then I hate this verse, and she began to wait on them. I'd like to know like, what the Greek is on that one. I didn't look into it. That's the NIV, but, you know, let's just say she arose and joined the party, okay? <laughs> that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove away demons. Told them not to speak. I mean, Jesus is like cracking. This is a good day. The party is, is happening, right? 
And then the very next words is what we read this morning. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus went to a solitary place. Um, so much so that the disciples had to come looking for him, right? The demand was so high, the disciples are like, Jesus, where are you? He's gone. He's left. He's out in the woods. He does the exact opposite of what all of your business classes will tell you to do. He does the exact opposite of what our church planter classes told me to do. Like when the demand is high, you ramp up production. You don't take a vacation, right? When people want your product, you start cranking it. You strike while the iron's hot. You got to get while the getting's good. Jesus does the exact opposite of that. He succeeds. It's gone well. He's had a great day. He's casted out demons. People are getting healed. You would think, like, double down. Buy another building. Add another service. That's not what he does. He goes away. He, wa- he backs up from success. Friends, think about the last time in your life when you just killed it, when you slayed it, when in your work, you were nailing it. All play question. I actually would love to know what rises up in you as you remember that moment when you were like, you were doing it. What, what feelings do you feel right now? Say it again. Proud. Energized. Coming from in stereo. What else? Satisfied. Joy. Clarity. Somebody give this guy a raise, right? Somebody give, like, promote this gal. Things are going well. When we succeed, it's really, really easy to move down a path that is a, uh, I'll just call it, um, a path that just is not fruitful. It's actually dangerous. And that path is, we uh, run the risk of thinking or believing that, like, okay, I am pretty good at this job. I am doing pretty well. And if you're anything like me, it's really easy to get wound up and wrapped up in, I am what I produce. My value, my worth, my identity becomes very easily connected to the thing that I make, the thing that I do, the thing that I produce in the world. And when you succeed, when you do well, it's really easy to believe that. I want to suggest that we see a model in Jesus that is so important to what it means to master the art of living as a human. And that is in success. When you nail it, when you succeed, when it's going well, to develop a practice of stepping back for a moment or two. To be reminded that, yeah, you are wonderful. You are made of, like, divine stardust. It, you're, you're an, a miracle. You're amazing. And you're clay. I'm clay. I'm not the energy. I didn't create that breath. I didn't manufacture that thing that I just did. Something someone else did. We forget grace. We forget that it's all a gift. And what Jesus models is a practice that is so important and vital to staying like tethered to reality. That my name, my identity, 
My value, my worth is not directly connected to what I produce. This morning, my prayer as I left my truck was, if this sermon sucks, I'm okay. Because I'm not a, uh, some value of my words, of my pastoring, of my preaching. You're not the sum of your work, of what you do. Don't ever forget that. When it's going badly, we, we want to believe that really bad. Like, I'm not the product of my, like, but when it's going well, you're also not the product. You're not the sum of your, of your worth. That's not where your worth is. Don't forget that. What Jesus models for us here is like life and death. So we see Jesus move towards silence before significant things and after success and in the middle, in the midst of grief. In Matthew's gospel, we read that when John the Baptist, his cousin, is imprisoned and then beheaded, it says that Jesus, like in grief, went to a solitary place and prayed. That in his grief, in his sadness, in his brokenheartedness, he went towards silence and solitude. Now, here's what I know about grief. And if I'm being honest, I don't know as much of it much about it as many of you do in this room. But what I do know about grief is that it is necessary. It's a necessary part of being human and something that we have to process and walk through. Resma Menachem, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands, talks about trauma, and he talks about metabolizing trauma, like, like working your way all the way through it so that you don't transmit it. And I think grief is the same. When we don't walk all the way through grief, we transmit it in ways we may not intend. And for me, and grief, it's not until I'm still and quiet long enough that that part of my soul that is brokenhearted will come out. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever watched a shy kid on the playground? Like, they're tentative, and they're a little unsure, and and sometimes it takes them a little while to, like, get in on the mix. And I know, I'll just speak for myself. This is my own experience, and maybe it's similar to yours. Maybe it's helpful. In grief, it's it's like this shy part of my broken soul that will only come out when I'm still and quiet long enough. Like, then my real soul arrives. Then my real self arrives. And if I'm not still and quiet long enough, I just drag this thing around. One of my, one of my regrets, I, I went to Spain this last year with Dahlia, my middle child, and um, we had a great time. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. We walked like 135 miles in 10 days, um, like a trooper, an amazing kid. And one of my regrets is in her reflections, she said that like it felt at times that I was just like, hell-bent on getting to where we were going. I know that doesn't surprise any of you. (laughs) And, you know, it's like waking up early to get to the destination, and she's like, Dad, Spain doesn't eat. They're all sleeping at 2 when you want to get there. They don't wake up until 5 or 6 or 7, so why do you want to get there, like, at 2? Or you're like, settle down. And I just dragged this kid across Spain, And I think we do that to our souls in grief sometimes. 
when we're so, when we experience brokenness, when we experience hurt, when we experience sadness and grief, the demand of our lives is so much so that we just keep going. And I think we drag this tender little part of our soul around until they're beat up and bloodied. Jesus, like, he goes away when he's sad, in grief. Why? Because he knows that God's intention and longing is to be with him in that sadness. How do I know this? How do I believe this? Because what do you want to do if you're a parent? But be with your child when they're hurting. Are you better than God? Any parent whose kid is, is like suffering, the deepest longing of, your, of your, your heart as a parent is to want to be with them and comfort them and be with them in that. Are you better than the divine? No, of course you're not. That's what God is like. Jesus is convinced, I think, and knows that God wants to be with him in that moment, in the midst of his grief. So as we think about silence and solitude, like removing ourselves from our daily lives with the intention of being in communion and in the presence of the divine, we see Jesus before significant things are happening move towards this, after success and in the midst of grief. I'll close with this question. I'll also just mention that Jesus seems to move towards silence and solitude when expectations are made known to him. Do you ever notice that? When the people want him to preach, when the people want him to come to his town, when the people are telling them what their expectations of him are, he's like, you know what? I'll be back in a bit. <laughs> As if he recognizes that like, he, he doesn't march to the beat of that drum. But maybe there are some of you here today who struggle with the idea of what I'm, at, what I'm inviting you to, in, to think about, like silence and solitude, stillness, quiet. And I want to ask this one question because I was thinking about it this week. If you are averse to that idea, if like your spirit's kind of like, ah, a little shifty right now, like you're a little nervous, is it possible that our aversion to intentional time in the presence of the divine is connected to our image of what God is like? Is it possible that if you're averse to this idea where you're like, ah, I don't know about that, is it possible that your aversion to spending time in the presence of the divine is because your image of the divine is not welcoming, is not someone or something that you would want to spend time with? I think for many of us, I was trying to think about like, why else would anyone be averse to spending time in the presence of pure love, in the presence of all that is good and light and wonder and beauty? Why would we be averse to that unless our picture of God, our imagination of God, what we think God is like is not that. And I don't know about you, but I've had to do a lot of work on what do I think God is like? What do I imagine God to be like? And that's a growing process. But I will say that part of my aversion to it when I, when I first began to think about it was because I didn't, I didn't know if I could trust that being. I didn't know if I wanted to be in the presence of that being. Because my picture of God was inconsistent with what I have now learned to be true about Jesus. So I'll just throw that question out there for you to think about this morning. And then I'll just remind you that we don't go away and wait for God to arrive where we are. When we think about this idea of stepping away from our lives to spend intentional time with God, we don't go somewhere and wait for God to arrive there. That's theologically 
inaccurate and wrong. It's not true. It's a bad image. It's a bad understanding of God. We become aware, like Jenna's prayer this morning, our eyes become awakened. They, like Our ears become enlivened to see and hear what is already true. We don't arrive to places and wait for God to get there. We arrive to places and recognize that surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it, like Jacob said when he woke up from his dream. So what I'm inviting you to is a way of like thinking about the world and your own life, that you would develop the practice and the ability to become aware, awake, to have eyes to see and ears to hear what's already real and already playing, if you were here on Christmas Eve. So it's a practice. It's a habit. It's a skill. Hey, it's a new year. New year, new you, right? 2023, baby. You don't have to live the way you used to. You don't have to do the same things you did before. You can change if you want to. So an invitation to see and think about your own life, maybe a little differently. To step away from it for a moment so that you can see and hear what's already true. And that is that you are beloved. That you are a child of the divine. You are, your, your worth is already determined. Whatever, nothing you do changes that. This is what we hear. This is what we're, like, we're, we're invited to see and hear when we step away. So that we can re-engage and offer ourselves with fullness and aliveness. I think that's a good way to be human. Um, and I, I think we see Jesus modeling that. So I'm going to invite you to a time of silence. Um, in this series, we're taking a little bit of extra time after the teaching. So I'm actually going to lead you in a, um, a prayer practice that has changed my life, if I'm being honest. Uh, it's called imaginative prayer. So I'm going to just kind of walk with you for the next few minutes. I'd invite you to join me. Uh, you don't have to. You're always free to say no thank you. Um, but if you would, allow me to lead you in this. So if you would, uh, maybe close your eyes. Take a couple of deep breaths. And I'm going to just walk with you for a moment. And then I'm going to just kind of leave you there. So I'd love for you to imagine uh, a place, a place that you love, that you find great joy in, a place where you feel uh, safe. Maybe it's a favorite lake or river or cabin. Maybe it's a, a place in your home. But I want you to imagine yourself there. Make your way to that spot. Step away from your, your life as you know it. The everyday. You'll come back to it, but just for a moment. And then I want you to imagine whatever you picture God to be like. Maybe it's light, maybe it's warmth, maybe it's a face. Maybe it's just a, like a presence. Whatever you imagine God to be like, I want you to imagine that presence, that face, that light with you. It's been there all along, but you're becoming aware of it. You know that it's true. 
then if you're willing, pray something like, God, uh, divine presence, Jesus, the next three minutes are yours to say whatever you want to say. I'm listening. And if you say nothing, can we just be together? As you close this time, maybe just a word of gratitude to God for being with you. As we close our gathering this morning, um, I want to invite you to Eucharist, if you would like. Um, on my left and my right, there's uh, red wine and white grape juice. I invite you to take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. And know that as you do, the body of Christ has been broken for you and the blood of Christ has been shed for you. Uh, Mel's going to lead us in song. So we'd invite you to make your way down the side aisles um, if you'd like and then head back to center aisle um, as you go. So let's respond together. To the church gathered this morning, uh, a reminder that you, uh, you have a, a whole lot of influence and control on the direction of your life. In a lot of ways, you don't, right? We live in a world where things happen. And, but you can choose. You can make choices. And I would just encourage you this morning, if that's what God is like, what we just sang about, then to be in the presence of the divine, to, to be intentional about that, man, it's good. It's good for me. So make a choice. Um, decide something today. Start small. Share it with who you came with or somebody that you care about. 
uh, an intention that you have to move towards silence and solitude. My guess is that it will bear much fruit. So uh, go with this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, amen. Grace and peace. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.